The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. From within session, let's appreciate session for a moment. As the Buddha Dharma evolved and Sangha's evolved, going way back and being from wandering mendicants, solitary practitioners, occasionally coming together during the rainy seasons, to the establishment of monasteries, which happened pretty quickly. Then the question of how to, um, what to do with that, how to organize the day, when you got a group of Dharma practitioners living together, what needs to be done in terms of to be able to live together and what needs to be done as Dharma practitioners, and how can those merge, unify? And so the establishing of these four sections or sessions of, of meditation, dawn, mid-morning, afternoon, evening, that goes way back. And, I mean, just to think about how this has evolved, how it might have evolved, I mean, it did, here it is, but what were the various ways in which that took place and how to, um, what's so nice about Sashin in our tradition is how so clearly integrated, woven, everything is. So it's really, it is one seamless whole, it's one continuous period of zazen that is taking up the four postures that the Buddha taught, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, taking care of all that's necessary, at the same time simplifying, minimizing what's necessary. So we just do what we have to, so that we can really devote all of our time in this way to the single-minded practice. So, you know, I think of it similarly as I think of, you know, that we can come into session and think, oh, this is session. That's what it is. That's what it always has been. It's a thing. We do this thing. But to think of the sort of organic nature of that, how it had to evolve, didn't always look like this. And doesn't, doesn't look like this in other traditions. I think of it in a similar way to, to the monastery, where somebody comes in now, these days, and sees the monastery, this nice floor, the Sangha house, the Jizo house, offices. There they go. This is what it is. This is a mountain monastery. How nice. <laughs> and no sense of how, of what it was, how it has come to be this over the years. And in particular, the thousands, millions, billions of actions, efforts, dedications through people, 
through people, through people, knowing how it comes down to us. Master Dogen taught in Undivided Activity, the great way of all Buddhas thoroughly practiced is emancipation and realization. And I thought of that line in relationship to these slogans that I'll speak about today. The first one being, don't vacillate or don't fluctuate. A sustained effort that has continuity, has stability. Water doesn't boil unless the heat applied is sustained. We'll never reach the top of a mountain without a sustained effort of walking. Judy Leaf speaks about this in relationship to how when we come into practice, we can be very enthusiastic. It seems sometimes remarkable to have encountered the Dharma, a teaching that might resonate so deeply with us, that seems to have such understanding, clarity of purpose and insight to have these many hundreds of years of examples of people doing this very thing. And so we start studying, sitting and studying, listening to talks, going to retreats, setting up altars, talking about the Dharma. But all of that is, what is important is a sustained ongoing effort to not vacillate, which is tough because that's a lot of what we do, right? We fluctuate. We turn on, we turn off. We step forward, we move back, we wake up, we go to sleep. And I think generally we're not used to a sustained effort, not just of, of a physical effort, but more importantly of spirit, of faith, of intention, resolve. Because things do fluctuate, nothing stays the same. And internally things fluctuate, our mood, our energy, we're influenced by circumstances as those change, how that all affects those qualities of faith and resolve and commitment, sincerity, trust. And so to develop a stability, a, a, a consistency. Jesus says, no matter how you enter into the practice of mind training, the idea is to become more steady and in that, more confident, that as we are more steady, that actually fosters confidence. We might not make that connection in the beginning. Why would that be so? Because the more steady we are, the more we're showing ourselves that we are doing this. It's not that uncommon that in the midst of session, somebody will come into Doksan and say, I don't know if I can do this. And I say, you are doing this. What is it that you don't know? And so the word practice, which is such a wonderful, appropriate word, defined as the actual application, to actually apply or use an idea, belief, a method, as opposed to theories. Or a repeated exercise in some activity or skill so as to acquire or maintain proficiency. Who was a very famous cellist? Was it Casals, Pablo Casals? I don't remember, but who said that 
you know, in a very mature point in their, in their music life, said that if they missed a couple days practice, they would know it. If they missed a few more days, their agent would know it. If they missed a few days, everybody would know it. That that maintaining a proficiency of skill, of, of um, that integrated ability to engage in something. You know, that's ostensibly what we all want. We want to live this. We, want, we don't want it to just... You know, we're not just coming to Session to have some week of experience and then go home and everything and go back to everything as it was before. I've never heard anybody aspire to that. <laughs> so obviously we want it to to something to happen that is more continuous, that goes with us, that is us. And that's not so easy. Right? It's a pretty common, if not universal, experience that within intensive training, we experience ourselves, our meditation, each other in certain ways, and then we go back, and we, it's as though that begins to come apart. It's like we can almost watch it crumbling and dissolving. So it's to make real the teachings, the basic principles that the Buddha laid out which begin conceptually because they are ideas and, and, and principles that are, we're being taught. We learn. We understand the language. What are, what, are, what are these teachings talking about? What do these terms mean? But always for the express purpose of applying that, bringing that into what we're actually doing. That it doesn't just stay an idea, a concept. It's not just for theoretical knowledge. It's not just for the satisfaction of knowing something. It's to enter it into our bones, to let it guide us, to actualize the Dharma throughout the body and mind. It's like I think of marinating. It's like we want striving to marinate in the Dharma. That's kind of what Sashin is, a big group marination. In mindfulness, in meditation, in right understanding, in our speech and action, the, the precautions speak to that, so that we can not only develop those skills and become proficient, which what does that mean? It means more natural, more easy, more relaxed, more integrated, less self-conscious. We don't have to remember so much. We don't have to remind ourselves so much. We don't have to return so much to become ever more at home within this. So in the beginning, it's not like that. Of course, session is strange, it's unfamiliar, it can be intimidating, it can be difficult. It's hard to do nothing, right? It's hard to do nothing. Explain that to your friends who don't practice. And when we're not familiar, when things are not familiar, we tend to be more, less relaxed, more self-conscious. And so whether it's just sitting, whether it's service positions, training positions, it's easy then to get more distracted, to be more consumed, right, with some new responsibility that we're given for that to come into our zazen. It's one of the things to really appreciate about the service positions, particularly the jikido. 
right, where, where more than any other position, your zazen itself is, being, is taking in a responsibility and needing to be integrated, right, with just being aware of the time. And how to do that in such a way that it's not obsessive, that it's not actually an interruption. So it's one of the first points where within zazen, the student has the opportunity to actually expand their meditation, their concentration, so that in one moment they're sitting with their practice, the next moment they glance at the clock, and then they return, and there's no interruption. But in the beginning, it's not like that. So all of this is about not vacillating, not fluctuating, which happens by by entering into those, those creating circumstances where we will fluctuate, in a sense, so that we can learn to be more steady. It doesn't happen as much anymore, but in the early days when Buddhism was much less sort of, you know, there was much less awareness of it, much less about it, just out in the world, in the, in, in, in the West, <clears throat> it wasn't un- that unusual that people would come And, you know, to make a heroic effort. I remember times where somebody would show up at the door, literally, here, I'm here to, I'm here to to do this. For how long? For as long as it takes. This idea of making this heroic effort, damn the cost, get enlightened, and then move on. I told the story about the guy who called up, I think, from Arkansas, who said he was selling his farm, putting everything in the truck. He was coming here for that heroic effort. I said, please do not do that. Do not sell your farm. Do not put everything in your truck. Do not show up on the front steps. (laughs) But he did. And honest to God, I don't even think he slept overnight. I don't think he stayed here through the night. It took so little time to crush. <laughs> and we didn't even hardly do anything except talk, target about the schedule, you know. But there's so, um, I mean, you know, there's something kind of, I don't know, if you look at it that way, it's kind of sweet, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but it's just not, it's not just not grounded, it's just not realistic. It has, it's an unrealistic confidence in one's ability, an unrealistic sense of oneself, of karma, of the depth of our entanglements, of what practice is, actually is, of what liberating ourselves actually is, as though we could have one experience that would completely dissolve, not only dissolve our negative habits, but infuse us with all of the positive qualities that we're trying to cultivate and embody these enlightened qualities in, in one experience. So as we become less fluctuating, less vacillating, then we can train wholeheartedly more and more. The second slogan, train wholeheartedly. That's a wonderful word, with a whole heart. And remember in the In the Chinese character, Shin, it's heart and mind, indivisible, one thing, the whole thing. It includes everything. It includes intellect, our mentality, includes emotions, includes the body and the mind, includes the whole thing. Train 
wholeheartedly. That means within the whole thing, using the whole thing. Trayla Calgon says, a wholehearted commitment is about seeing something through to the end. And this is the way I, I've always, or for long, have thought about commitment, is how to stay with something. You know, think of New Year's resolutions as we approach the end of our year, and the sort of well-known trail of what happens often with New Year's resolutions, right? Is that they don't really, they don't get followed through. And so that ability to follow through on something that is worthy of that kind of sustained effort, which means we should be careful about what we make our commitments to, be sure that that's really what we intend to do. And then how to do that, right? Because that's like the living part of it, the everyday part of it, the up and down part of it. The reality, sometimes the hard, cold reality of what it means to actually be wholehearted. He says, courage is an essential aspect of our practice. It's far better to overestimate what we seek. We should never think, I'll just aim small, because I only have the capacity to become a slightly better person. But he says, be realistic, but aim high, and let go of your hope and your fear. So we could look at the outer aspects of this, where training wholeheartedly means we do something. We're doing something. And so the thing that we're doing should be wholehearted. So Sishin is a wholehearted, sustained effort for the period of this week. Ango is a wholehearted effort to sustain for the period of the 90-day training period, shorter in the fall. Being a practitioner is a to train wholeheartedly, to practice wholeheartedly on a daily basis, to sit, to study, to do liturgy, to live the precepts, to reflect. All that practice that we're taught will, is effective and will actually make our efforts worthy of our efforts. And then there's the internal part, which is so profoundly important. Some people are just kind of disciplined by nature and that they can take up something like practice and and do it, do it regularly. For some people, that's, that's a real challenge to be able to do that on their own. So that becomes a, you know, sort of a central part of their focus and their effort. But for some people, that comes pretty easily. But that doesn't mean that internally that that wholeheartedness is being manifest. And so we raise bodhicitta, we reflect on impermanence, we contemplate death. We actually turn our attention to the things that people don't really want to think about. And in that, we learn how to do that. So we're not just obsessing over something or in some sort of unhealthy way or unhelpful way, fixate on something, but to contemplate, which really means to hold our attention, to turn our attention to something so that we can see it more clearly. We do meta practices. We raise our intention, all of these things, so that they can blend. All of those internal experiences and invocations can blend with our consciousness. Because our consciousness has been blending 
since we were born with all kinds of stuff. Not all of it very helpful. And so that's why I spoke this morning about, I think it was about faith. That's why to train wholeheartedly really means trusting the Dharma, really having faith. Because what we trust, we'll give ourselves to, we'll, we'll give ourselves to. This is the truth, not a lie. Like, that line just, I just didn't get for so long. It just seemed so simple. Like, none of the rest of the sutra did I understand. But that one line, this is the truth, not a lie. It's like, what? Who was I, was I thinking it was a lie? Like, where's that coming from? It just seems such a, a strange sort of different kind of message. <laughs> In the midst of this, you know, such profound teaching, which is clearly coming from deep within that very truth. And then it's sort of like somebody over on the side is saying, I know you're not buying this. <laughs> And so these messages, practicing as our head is on fire. The early years is, is a, your turban is on fire. I mean, just imagine that. Like, would you put that off? Would you think, I don't know, I'm not in the mood. I don't, I'm not sure I'm up for it. It's quite inconvenient. I was in the middle of something. <laughs> as though our life depends upon it. That's what the Buddha realized, is the life that we, what we call our life, depends upon mind. Literally, it is, it is utterly dependent upon mind. There is no world apart from mind. And so, what is this mind? And so realizing that whatever we do, whether we practice or not, our life is depending on that. And as Trelik says, to have courage, to have courage to have that faith, to sustain that effort, to be willing to give oneself wholeheartedly, so utterly, so unreservedly. <clears throat> you know, think of the Satipatthana Sutta, the foundations of mindfulness, this essential teaching of the Buddha in which he basically laid out the essential practice of meditation that became the basis of everything. And how it is, it begins with the body. And he takes us through all of these different contemplations, these practices, these meditations on different aspects of the body, from something as simple as the breath to a rotting corpse. And then feelings, sensation, this ongoing experience of, of coming into contact within the body with different, all sorts of sensations. And then mind, awareness and consciousness and mind objects, emotions, everything that we can experience. What it's really pointing to is shin, the whole thing, the whole body and mind. That the meditation is, is turning our attention to each aspect, which in its totality, takes up the whole 
of the body and mind and everything as our meditation. And to have courage to be that all in. I was remembering when I was preparing, many years ago when I was still studying music, and I was preparing for, I don't remember if it was a recital or an audition. It was something that mattered a lot to me and that I was, you know, a little anxious about. But I was preparing for it, putting a lot of time and energy into it. <clears throat> and I remember one day being aware of an of a impulse to hold back a little bit, to not actually do my best, to not try my, to give my utmost to my preparation for this recital. Because if I didn't do that, and it didn't go so well, then I could say to myself, well, you know, I didn't really give it my all. But if I did, and, I, and it didn't go well, then I would have no excuse. And then I realized that to, to do the latter would give me much more regret. That that would be so profoundly, um, not just unsatisfying, but I would be, feel ashamed. So I gave it all I had. <laughs> and so I thought of that in terms of courage, because that's what I needed. I needed to have courage to be all in, do my best, and then let that be enough, however it came out. And then the last slogan is to liberate yourself by examining and analyzing. This is very important. It's a really essential part of um, a Buddha Dharma. The Buddha said, you know, we have to take care of our actions, clean up our house, you know, stop creating harm, practice the precepts and the paramitas. We need to settle the mind. We need to develop a mind that is more stable, more settled, less fluctuating, so we can be wholehearted. Although we can be wholehearted, practice wholeheartedly in any state, which is actually really important. It's really important, particularly during Sashin, because it's more keenly felt, perhaps, is that when we're feeling not very whole, what is it then to be wholehearted? What is it then to really give all of yourself when you're feeling half there. Energy, mood, trust, remembering why you came, whatever it might be. That's excellent practice. Because then you, you begin to see how powerful you are. And then there's insight, prajna, to develop wisdom. And so our meditation needs to have those different aspects. So koan, in our tradition, koan is a very clear and sort of conscious, deliberate, inquiry-based practice. The koan either explicitly asks a question that is to be resolved, there's an inquiry, or implicit within the koan, the dialogue. It doesn't make clear what the question is, but the student has to, to ferret that out, has to see the question, see what is to be resolved, see what the inquiry is. What is your original face, the face you had before your parents were born? How do you stop the suffering? 
not with an explanation, but what's the, alt, what's the direct experience of that? When the bell sounds, does your ear go to the bell, or does your, the bell sound go to your ear? What is that we call the sound of the bell? What is Buddha? Matsu said, mind is Buddha. What is mind? A student once asked Master Zhaozhou, does a dog have Buddha nature? And Zhaozhou said, Mu, no. Dogen, commenting on this, says, can you gauge this word? No? Or Muji, can you contain it? Somebody asked Master Dongshan, what is the correct way to ask, to make an inquiry, to ask this question in this koan? Dongshan said, you don't do it with your mouth. You don't use your throat and lips. It's not a word. Dogen says, can you gauge it? Can you measure it? Can you contain it? There is no place at all to grasp the nose of this. Please try letting it go. Let it go and just look, just see, just inquire. What about your body and mind? What about your conduct? What about life and death? What about the Dharma of the Buddha, the Dharma of the world? What about, after all, the mountains and rivers and great earth, the people, the animals, houses and dwellings? If you keep asking and seeing, seeking, then the two attributes of motion and rest will naturally become perfectly clear without arising. Yet when these attributes do not arise, this doesn't mean that you should become rigidly fixed. There are many people who fail to realize this and are confused about it. So what he's saying is that when we really go very deeply, we're not becoming more... Stability is not fixedness, it's pliancy. It's spaciousness. It is unconstrained. So Dogen here is on a, just a litany of liberate yourself by examining and analyzing. And this analysis, as it's spoken about, is not the sort of analysis that we do that is purely conceptual. This can have a conceptual element, but it's, it's in our meditation, so it's coming out of a deep concentration, so it's not conceptual. So if you're working on the breath and your practice is being the breath, what does that mean? How do you be the breath? Is the breath something apart from you? Are you already the breath? And why don't you experience being the breath? Is that a practice that you do? Is it something that just happens to you? We can ask such questions of any meditation practice. When you're in pain and wholeheartedly train in the pain, you let the pain fill you and the pain drops away. Where did it go? In the Mahapanunibbana Sutta that we studied last Ango, I think, there's that section where, the, where Ananda is imploring the Buddha to keep living. Stay alive, stay alive, don't die. We need you. We need you. Don't go, don't go. <laughs> and the Buddha is talking about it, likening himself to an old, old beaten-up cart that's just held together by straps. And in that, he said, essentially, in much better language, he said, essentially, the only time when I'm really at ease is when I'm meditating. When I'm out of my meditation, then I'm aware, I'm keenly aware of all of this body that is falling apart. 
when we have a strong emotion, it comes with all kinds of qualities and characteristics. That's how we can identify it. Pain looks like this. Sadness feels like this. Joy comes looking like this. But where are those characteristics? In pain, when you call it pain, my leg is hurting, it's in pain. Can you, when you put your mind into that very place, can you find something that is pain? Can you touch it? Can you hold on to it? Can you gauge it? Can you contain it? The mind observes objects arising and passing. But what is this mind that observes? What is it that sees? What is it that notices? It's the mind that is aware of the body, of feelings, of mind and mind objects. Can we grasp this mind? How do we study this self without getting caught in ideas, expectations, in teachings? How do we apply the teachings, liberate ourselves, using the teachings to examine and analyze without getting caught in the teachings? We have to, it has to be a kind of pure study. So as we develop and mature understanding, we need to continue, in a sense, to practice with innocence. It's one of the challenges of koan students is as they develop understanding through the koans, that each new koan that they take up, they go into it as an innocent. Don't know. Even if you already have an insight that you, that you see, even as you glance at this koan, leave that behind. Don't carry it with you. Otherwise, you, you, you won't go in clean and fresh. And you can't sit with the koan. You can't make an inquiry. Because you know. Chandrakirti said, ordinary folks are fettered by their thoughts. Without such, such concepts, you are set free. The very halting of discursiveness is the fruit of true examination. It's very interesting what he's saying. That's just showing how this, this so-called analytic aspect of our meditation is, by nature, must ultimately be non-conceptual. And then when it becomes purely non-conceptual, then it is purely experiential, direct experience. Because it's the discriminating consciousness that divides and divides and conquers, right? That's what it basically is trying to do. Divide and conquer, to know, to name, to objectify, to control, to have a sense, to, to domesticate. And so to develop our stability, to train wholeheartedly, and to liberate ourselves by deep examination. That's why whatever form of zazen we're practicing, and there are forms of zazen that are more purely developing concentration and mindfulness, or not so much about inquiry. There are other forms of meditation that may be more sort of centered on inquiry, but need a developed concentration and mindfulness to develop, to develop that stability so that it's not conceptual. Right? The mind's not just turning. So whatever form of zazen we're practicing, one way to kind of ensure that those elements are either present or have the capacity to be present 
is both the calming aspect, just letting things settle, and then the brightness of awareness. That's why it's so important to not get dull, right? Not just because we get sleepy, but because in that dullness, the, the brightness, the natural brightness and clarity, lucidity, incisiveness of the mind begins to, to dull, right? It's not, it's not fully present. It's not vibrant, which means that, that it's a capacity to show us, to reveal to us, to illuminate is diminished. And so it's a fairly accessible way and a really essential way to be aware of Zazen and to be cultivating it so that when you are feeling dull or sort of listless or, you know, just foggy, hazy, to try and bring your mind back into a, 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 a wakefulness, right? And that may be in the breath, if you're working with the breath, in the koan, or just awareness itself. Because the mind has that natural capacity. And the more we cultivate that, the more that becomes non-fluctuating, more integrated, more naturally present. Whereas when we sit here and are dull and sort of go with that, we're kind of training, we're creating, perpetuating an association with this meditation seat and this posture of the Buddha and Sashin and everything with that dullness. So we're sort of strengthening that association, which is not so good. So wake ourselves up, bring ourselves back into clarity. You know, when we train in these teaching phrases, then our, they help us, our practice to mature. That's the purpose. They help our hearts to open, to cultivate the bodhisattva commitment, vow. And as our practice develops, these teachings to just focus on these because we're focusing on them, they become more naturally present. Right? So they're intended to <clears throat> be short and pithy so we can remember them, so we can recall them, so they can come back to us, we can carry them with us. So that over time, as that, as that it's being integrated and maturing, they're just living within us. They just are more and more how we are practicing. All the teachings kind of work like that. And so again, going back to appreciating Sashin, to really appreciate that all that is happening in this web of causation, in this symphony of Dharma song, all that we're aware of, that we can see and, and note, right? And then all that we are not aware of, right? We, which we can't measure but is going into the very, very depths of our consciousness, into our bones. So let's keep that close to mind. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.